Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Asanda Mazzawanyane. Tracy Bumgard and Tami Kluza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, U.S. Embassy in South Africa issues terror attack warning, Burundi opposition party officials shot dead in Bujumbura, and South Sudan's rivals accuse each other of violating the ceasefire. In economics, South African president says progress has been made to bring back stability in the mining industry, and in sports news, Nigeria's Super Eagles beat Niger in a friendly match. But first up, the news with Asanda Matsanyane. Good morning. South Africa's state security ministry says it's investigating reports that the American government and business interests in South Africa are under threat from extremists. The ministry's spokesperson, Brian Dube, says they're working with the relevant law enforcement agencies as well as the U.S. authorities. The U.S. State Department spokesperson, John Kirby, confirms the cooperation. As far as I can go is to, is to confirm that... Um uh, that the, the embassy had information uh, indicating a potential uh, terrorist threat, and they acted on that by issuing uh, a warning, which is what we're supposed to do. So the system worked. I don't have any specifics to share with you today on uh, the nature of that, um, and I suspect I think you'll understand why we don't you know, get into a public discussion of that, but they did the right thing. They put it out in a timely fashion, and we'll continue to monitor the situation. We want people to be safe. That's our job. Zimbabwe's ousted Vice President Joyce Mujuru has released a political manifesto which shows a possible intention to launch a new party to challenge President Robert Mugabe. Mujuru has published a policy statement titled Build. The statement outlines her plans to revive Zimbabwe's ailing economy and strengthen democratic rights. Mujuru was fired along with eight other cabinet ministers in December last year after Mugabe accused her of plotting to oust him. Uganda's opposition and rights groups have accused President Yoweri Museveni's government of training militia to intimidate opposition supporters during next year's elections, a claim denied by the government. In recent weeks, Ugandan police have been training thousands of civilian youths across the country as the so-called crime preventers to help with intelligence gathering and security among the local population. But the opposition fears the newly trained contingent could be used to prop up veterans leader Museveni, who is seeking another five-year term in the polls due to be held between February and March next year. Venezuela is prepared to give asylum to 20,000 refugees from the conflict in Syria. President Nicolas Maduro's offer comes as Europe struggles to cope with record numbers of asylum seekers escaping conflicts in Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan. More than 4 million Syrians have fled civil war in their country in the last four years. Maduro and his predecessor Hugo Chavez have both expressed support for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. And finally, a British Airways plane has caught fire at an airport in Las Vegas, but the flames have since been extinguished. Only two people among the 159 passengers and 13 crew on board have suffered minor injuries. McCarran International Airport revealed to social media that the flight bound for London Gatwick engulfed in flames and thick black smoke after an aborted takeoff. McCarran International says the fire has been put out and that flight operations are continuing on its three other runways. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matsaunyen. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, réveille toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sunrise, le soleil élevé. We ya wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, du melang san bonani. Africa, mulishani, mulibwanji. Africa, ayen yomi, kilon shele. Africa, ndinkim, kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Wednesday, September the 9th, the 252nd day of 2015 with 113 days left in the year. The United States Embassy in Pretoria has issued a rare terrorist threat warning to U.S. interests in the country and advised its citizens to be on heightened alert against attack. The message released on Tuesday said there was no information on the possible timing or target in South Africa, which has escaped the militant Islamic, Islamist attack since seen in several other African countries. Kate Fisher reports from Washington. This appears to be a very specific threat to South Africa. There have been no similar warnings issued for its neighbouring countries. The security message said that the U.S. diplomatic mission to South Africa has received information that extremists may be targeting U.S. interests in the country to possibly include U.S. government facilities and other facilities identifiable with U.S. business interests. But there was no more additional information as to timing or where exactly were the potential targets. But U.S. State Department spokesman John Kirby wasn't giving much more information. As far as I can go is to, is to confirm that, um, uh, that the, the embassy had information uh, indicating a potential uh, terrorist threat, and they acted on that by issuing uh, a warning, which is what we're supposed to do. So the system worked. I don't have any specifics to share with you today on uh, the nature of that, um, and I suspect I think you'll understand why we don't you know, get into a public discussion of that, but they did the right thing. They put it out in a timely fashion, and we'll continue to monitor the situation. We want people to be safe. That's our job. Well, to that end, the embassy warning advises American citizens to review their personal security plans, to remain aware and vigilant of their surroundings, including at local events, to monitor local news stations for updates, and to follow instructions from local authorities, and to remind them to be vigilant and take appropriate steps to enhance their personal security. Kate Fisher, Washington. The United States warned its citizens yesterday of a possible attack by extremists against U.S. facilities or interests in South Africa. A rare security alert in a stable democracy seldom associated with Islamist militancy. In a statement on its website, the U.S. Embassy said it had no information about a specific target or timing, but advised Americans to review their personal security plans and maintain their vigilance. Earlier, we spoke to Brian Dubé from the Ministry of State Security here in South Africa. Well, we can confirm that we have been having interactions with the U.S. authorities uh, on this matter as part of our normal work that we do uh, in the country. We have had an opportunity with our law enforcement agencies in the country to try and establish some facts and verify this information. And what we would like really to indicate is that while we understand and cannot dismiss the, this information by the Americans, because indeed it is their right to warn their citizens, we have not been able at this stage to establish an imminent danger or threat that faces us here in the country. And therefore, we do want to indicate to our people in the country and indicate uh, to our partners in the country that at this stage, there is no danger that is facing us everywhere. However, we want to hasten to indicate that we will continue to investigate this information further, working with the Americans to ensure indeed that we can be able to prevent any attack that might happen. Even though, as you know, South Africa is a relatively stable country. Our region in Sunday is relatively stable. 
and uh, we are doing a lot of work uh, working with our partners in the continent and in social community to ensure that we create conditions of safety in our country, in our continent. Now, Brian, South Africa has been described, even though we are very stable as a country, it has been described as a soft target looking at all the American-owned businesses that are in the country. What's your response to this as a government? Well, as government, we want to indicate that we do have measures in place that we've always deployed to ensure that we can, we can secure the safety of everyone in the country as it were. Even at a heightened condition, for instance, when we have big events, national events, international events, we've been able to ensure that we can secure all establishments in the country. You will recall, for instance, that in 2010, we were able to relatively ensure that the tournament as big as it were, it proceeded without any major incident. And, and of course, such information, if you recall, was uh, indicated, similar information was indicated at the time. And of course, our experience that uh, we've been able to amass over the years has indeed enabled us as government to ensure that we can be able to protect our country and all the relations that are present, be they foreign or be they national. And therefore, we want to continue to do that work. We want to continue to work with everyone to ensure that indeed ours is a safe country where indeed we can, people can be able to go about their normal business. But I do want to make the point, however, that we are not dismissing this uh, information uh, as we provided. We are saying it is important for us to work further on it, working with them, and of course to ensure that um, they, at this stage there should be any panic uh, everywhere. That was Brian Dube, Head of Communication from the Ministry of State Security in South Africa. It's 8.11 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now for more on the United States warning its citizens of a possible attack by extremists against U.S. facilities or interests in South Africa, we are now joined on the line by defense analyst Helmut Heitmann. Good morning, Helmut, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Morning. Morning, pleasure. Helmut, what do you make of this alert from the U.S.? Look, the U.S. the last two years has been a little overly paranoid, suppose you can understand after 9-11, but they've issued lots of warnings and that happened. Now, to an extent, that is, of course, a little, the little boy crying wolf. The other side of it is intelligence services. If they don't issue a warning when they, have, when they pick up a whisper and something does happen, they'd be, they'd be crucified. So I think in this particular case, maybe, again, they're being a little overly paranoid, but they've obviously picked up some sort of whisper. I mean, they've, they've become a little more practical about what they warn of and what they don't in the last year or two. So they've picked up something. Um, I presume they've shared the information with the South African Intelligence Services, and that will now be followed up, I, I, would assume, I would hope, in cooperation between the two, and, in fact, also speaking, I would think, I would hope, uh, with other intelligence services in the region, particularly our immediate neighbours because people, particularly if they intend to come in with weapons or explosives, say uh, they're not going to just fly into Oliver Tambo Airport. They're going to come into another country and then then hop across the border by other means. Helmut, not much was revealed by the American authorities. What could be the reason for that? Maybe they don't know a lot. They just picked up a whisper. Or they have quite a lot of giving too much information in a public uh, document would indicate where they got the information from. That's always been a problem with intelligence. If you you act on it, and you, or if you give away too much of what you know, then the other side can work out maybe how you got the information in the first place, and there goes your source, or there goes your channel. So they've always got to be a little cautious. But it could be either. It could be they've just picked up a whisper with no details, or they've picked up a whisper, or they've got something but don't want to give too much information because that would indicate how they got the information. I would assume that whatever they've got, they've got they, they would have shared with high intelligence services. Should South Africans be worried? Heck, I don't think worried per se. Your chances of being killed by a large hailstone are probably larger than getting involved in something like this. But, I mean, one needs to be cautious. You know, we, we tend to be a little unhappy in South Africa. We think all these problems that other countries have won't ever affect us. You know, we look at Syria, we look at Libya, we look at the former Bosnia, or former Yugoslavia, rather. We... We look at those countries and their problems and we think, gee, we're lucky, this, this can never happen here, or Rwanda for that matter. And we need to remember that, in fact, it can. Now, we've been lucky. We haven't had a, a foreign source terrorist attack, 
we have had a couple of local groups that, that tried their luck. Unfortunately, were, were dealt with by the intelligence services quite quite promptly. And you will recall, not long ago, uh, some young lady tried to join ISIS, leaving from from the Cape. Again, fortunately, intelligence services were on the ball and, and caught them before they could do that. But we are a little bit too optimistic, perhaps. Terrorism strikes anywhere. The, the point there is to, to create publicity. We don't actually care who they kill. If you recall, Al-Qaeda attacked U.S. embassies in, in Kenya and Tanzania. They killed mainly Kenyans and Tanzanians, but for them it was a success. They got lots of headlines. Do we have mechanisms in place as South Africa to prevent a terror attack? Look, we have some, and so far the intelligence services have proved uh, pretty competent in, in picking things up. If you go back to when elements of Pagad got out of hand and bombed things at uh, police stations in Cape Town, and so they dealt with them pretty promptly. Now, also, more recently, there's attempt by some young ladies to join ISIS. But overall, I think, uh, probably not as, we're not as good as we should be at this game. I think we're a little too optimistic. Our intelligence services are too much in disarray as a result of playing musical chairs with the senior appointments forever, which must make life incredibly difficult for the people actually run the organizations and work from them. You never know who's in charge and how much you can trust people. I think those aspects are still a little limiting. And I think also the, the problem in terms of reacting to a crisis, I'm not sure our emergency services are as good as they should be. And I'm afraid the, the special forces and the police special task force have lost too many people. So they probably aren't quite as, as capable as they should be. Not that the individuals aren't capable, they probably don't have as many people as they should be anymore. Now, Helmut, South Africa has been described as a soft target by some um, in, in the security sector or analysts. Are we as a soft target as South Africa? I think largely yes, because we do have, we're a target-rich environment. There are a lot of American companies and uh, Western European companies active in South Africa. And for the radical elements in, in some groups, those are targets. Now, I don't, think, I don't see, or I didn't see, Al-Qaeda, when it was a sort of semi-controlled organization, ever carrying out an attack in South Africa, it wouldn't suit them. South Africa was neutral in that whole issue. South Africa was probably a convenient place to have meetings and channel funds through, etc. while off the boat. Possibly the same applies to ISIS, or ISIL if you prefer. The problem is, of course, all of them have uh, lunatic things offshoots, and they don't think things through. They just attack where they see a target. We have lots of targets. And I'm not sure that, that our, our security is as good as it should be. Our internal intelligence seems to be pretty good. How good our external intelligence is, I don't know. Uh, given that we are adopting increasingly anti-Western policy in many respects, at least at cabinet level, um, probably we're not getting quite as much intelligence sharing from those, uh, those services as we should. So that makes us a bit vulnerable. Target in environment, um, maybe intelligence sharing not as good as it should be. And then add the fact that our border security is, is pretty shaky. You can walk across much of our border or drive across it if you feel like it. You could fly across the border and land on a farm strip somewhere and leave them um, Coming across the beach or through yacht harbor or fishing port without any noticing is not that difficult. So in that sense, yeah, we are pretty soft target. Helmut, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. That was Defence Analyst Helmut Heitmann joining us on the line. If you are interested in the hospitality industry in Africa, then we have news for you. Join Channel Africa from the 9th to the 11th of this month. We will be bringing you live coverage of the Hotel Investment Conference Africa taking place at the Hilton Hotel in Johannesburg, South Africa. This premier business-to-business networking and engagement platform is being held this year under the theme Growth Through Partnerships. So join Channel Africa's African Dialogue and Gateway to Africa programs on Thursday and Friday at 1100 Central African Time for live coverage from the Hotel Investment Conference from the 9th to 11th of September. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka. Now. 
South Sudan's warring factions have again accused each other of violating a ceasefire, which formed part of a peace agreement signed last month. Here's Channel Africa's James Manula with more. With nearly three months remaining before South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his principal political and military opponent Riek Machar form a government of national unity, fresh fighting is taking place in the volatile and oil-producing Upper Nile region. Upper Nile, birthplace of rebel leader Riek Machar, is north of South Sudan capital Juba. Its capital, Malakal, has three times been taken by rebels, but recaptured by government troops. Recent fighting resulted in each side seizing big areas in Upper Nile region. The latest fighting is taking place at a time when both sides have agreed to stop fighting as per the peace agreement which President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Machar signed. Each side claims to have been attacked by the other. Here is rebel leader Riek Machar to tell us briefly what has happened in the Upper Nile region. The government has been breaking the ceasefire. It has not stopped its offensive, despite the fact that the, the government declared the ceasefire. This is not satisfactory. I have complained, I have protested on the violations done by the government. And I have written to IGAD leaders and those who participated or who witnessed this agreement. Definitely we should move forward. We have done nothing. We are only defending ourselves. The government it had barges on the Nile attacking our positions. We responded. We sank some of the barges. The government is using helicopter gunships for the last four days and also occupying our bases. Responding to claims by rebel leader Riek Machar that government troops were the first to violate the ceasefire, President Salva Kiir's spokesman, Ateng Wekateng, had this to say. We are on offensive. It is the side of the military on offensive, not the government. But uh, Wek, kindly looking at the whole situation, yes. the way it is unfolding, and being uh, the government eye, do you think really the agreement will stick together and uh, both of you will comply to it? Riyad Machar has only taken the international community for granted. Is Riyad Machar to implement the agreement? Is it true that uh, Riyad Machar forces uh, have captured Malakal? No, they have not captured. They have not captured Malakal, and they will not capture it. That was President Salva Kiir of South Sudan's spokesman, Ateng Wekateng. Fighting in South Sudan comes shortly after the United States Secretary of State Johnny Kerry pawned President Salva Kiir and expressed his concern of a ceasefire violation. But Kiel assured Kerry that his government fully respected the ceasefire. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shemanyula. An opposition figure in Burundi has been shot dead in the capital, Bujumbura. Patrice Gahungu from the Union for Peace and Development, UPD, was targeted by unidentified gunmen as he drove home late on Monday. Gahungu was killed almost four months after the chairman of the party was gunned down at his home. Bernard Bankukira has more from Bujumbura. Patrice Gahungu, the spokesman of the Union for Peace and Democracy, UPDE, was shot dead on Monday night by unidentified men as he was driving home in the Gihosha district in the north of Bujumbura. His wife, Clemence Sawimana, says her husband had no problem with neighbors and that he might have been killed due to political reasons. He was in a pub near the home. He even called me telling me that he was there and that he would be back in a moment. He even talked to two children. After a moment, a neighbor came to me and told me that my husband was shot dead. He was killed savagely. A lot of bullets were shot in his face. He was killed like a criminal. I think he was killed due to political reason because he had no problem with neighbors. But he used it to tell me that he and his fellows were hunted down, that he was on the list of people to kill. 
Patrice Gahungu was known to have actively participated in the protest against the third-term bid of President Pierre Nkurunziza. The party officials accused the ruling party to be behind the killing. Marina Barambama, the secretary-general of the party, says there is a plan underway aiming at killing whoever opposes the ruling party. If you consider how he was killed, it is a premeditated act. The chairman of the party, Z Fellows, was killed in that way as he was at his home. This is not an accident. This kind of killing is well planned. We know that opposition members are targeted by killing so as to force them shut up. This is done by people on power so as to do whatever they want without any opposition. This is why we condemn this killing. But this cannot delay us in our activity. We are acting for the salvation of the country. At the same time, four lifeless bodies were found in the district of Jibitoke in the northern capital of Ujumbura. The reason for the killings remain unknown as the police says investigations are underway to identify the perpetrators. The circumstances of the murder of Patrice Gahungu are similar to those of several others who are killed in what is seen as targeted political assassinations, including the killing of the president of the same party, Zedi Feruzi, and his bodyguard on May 23rd. The UPD is a small party of the Burundian opposition that was strengthened by receiving several ruling party CNDDFTD defectors. It was widely involved in the demonstrations against the disputed third term of President Pierre Nkurunziza that lasted for several weeks, but which the police managed to quash. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bojumbura. It's 8.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. What are your thoughts? What are your views today? Send us your thoughts and views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. The International Criminal Court, the ICC, says there is no provision for diplomatic immunity in the case of Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir attending an AU summit back in June and has requested the government to explain why it did not arrest him and transfer him to The Hague. President al-Bashir is indicted by the ICC for war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. ICC correspondent Jack Parrock reports. Omar al-Bashir is alleged to have masterminded the genocide of three prominent ethnic groups in Sudan. The UN estimates fighting in the country since 2003 has killed over 300,000 people. The ICC thinks South Africa didn't fulfill its obligation under international law by not arresting and handing him over when he attended the African Union summit in June. But South Africa claims the fact the Sudanese president visited the country on an AU invitation handed him diplomatic immunity. Fadi El Abdullah is an ICC spokesperson. The ICC considered that there is no immunity for Mr. al-Bashir, even as sitting head of a state, uh, because the ICC Rome statute clearly indicates that there are no immunities because of the official capacities of the uh, suspects. And because, according to the ICC, uh, the Rome Statute is applicable with regard to Sudan. South Africa now has until October 5th to provide its explanation to the court. If the court then deems there was non-cooperation, the ICC is likely to refer the matter to the UN Security Council. Nicolo Figa Talamanca is from the international justice NGO No Peace Without Justice. The violation of the law, of international law, has mostly embarrassment and condemnation uh, by the rest of the international community as the punishment. There's no, generally there's no other punishment uh, uh, unless uh, cases of uh, uh, very serious violations. President Jacob Zuma also agreed to visit Sudan when he met with President al-Bashir at an event in China, a move only likely to agitate the political tensions surrounding this matter. 
Countries like Russia and the United States are still not signed up to the jurisdiction of the ICC, although the court insists it's obligated to investigate South Africa for this matter. Voices on the African continent to withdraw from the court are only likely to grow louder as a result. Jack Parrick at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. It's 8.29 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Asanda Mazonyan. Good morning. South African and American authorities cooperate to deal with extremist threats in South Africa. There are prospects that Sri Dewani could for the first time be called to answer questions about his wife Annie's death. And the 2015 Global Age Watch Index names Afghanistan as the worst country to be old in. Those are your headlines here on Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Criminal defamation laws in two Portuguese-speaking countries came under the spotlight as a discussion on media freedom held at South Africa's University of the Witwatersrand. Rafael Marquez de Moray, journalist and human rights activist from Angola, and Tomás Vieira Mario, a journalist and media law expert from Mozambique, say criminal defamation laws in their countries are incompatible with freedom of expression and severely undermine the democratic rights of the media and concerned citizens to hold their governments to account. Selina Dobong reports. Defamation, defined as the communication of a false statement that harms the reputation of an individual person, business, product, group, government, religion or nation, has been found to be routinely used by many governments to silence critical voices and to deprive the public of information about the misconduct of officials. Human rights group, the Southern African Litigation Center, freedom of expression lawyer Caroline James, says journalists lawyers and activists who should be free to carry out their work without fear are instead vilified and criminalized under this law. Criminal defamation often is used to target journalists and many courts around the world, both in South Africa, Africa, international courts as well, have commented on how important the right to freedom of expression is in holding government and public officials accountable. And I think from that point of view, it's important to to recognize the fact that freedom of expression isn't only a right that belongs to the person who's expressing an opinion or sharing facts. It also belongs to the people who are receiving it. And that's where it it impacts so, so or why the media plays such an important role. Just two weeks ago, Mozambican economist Carlos Nuno Castel Branco and newspaper editor Fernando Mbenze were tried in court over a Facebook post criticizing the country's former president Armando Gebueza. And Castel Branco is charged with crime against the security of the state for publishing a comment on Facebook in November 2013 and faces a jail term of up to two years if convicted. Mbenze is charged with abuse using the freedom of the press by reprinting the comment. Mozambican journalist and media law expert Tomás Vieira Mario says Mozambique's criminal defamation law is a relic of colonialism and says it should be repealed. Our democratic system still believes in these values of uh, criminal defamation because in some cases the, the new code, penal, penal code, aggravates the penalties that come from the colonial court, even aggravates the sentences. You can't criticize public figures, you can't criticize their performance is still very strong in our culture. These things have been kept there in new code 
last year. I mean, things which come 200 years ago have been kept in our penal code now. Rafael Marques de Moray has become a household name in his home country, Angola, for exposing damning acts of human rights abuses and corruption there. In his book, Blood Diamonds, Corruption and Torture in Angola, de Moray describes how Angolan military officials and private security companies committed human rights abuses against Angolan villages in the course of diamond mining operations. Originally facing nine charges of defamation, He was informed of 15 additional charges being brought against him shortly before the opening of his trial on March the 24th. On May the 28th, he was convicted and given a six-month suspended jail sentence. He says the conviction was a huge blow to freedom of expression in Angola. Last May, I was convicted for uh, defamation and libelous denunciation. The main point is that I wrote a book in 2011, investigated abuses in the diamond areas, uh, wrote a book, published it in Portugal. Angola had no jurisdiction over the case because I published it in Portugal. So the generals whom I exposed in the book as being the culprits for such human rights abuses sued me in Portugal, where there's also defamation is criminalized. And the case was thrown out on the grounds that my investigation had been very rigorous and I had the evidence and provided in court. Quite often we are (coughs) prosecuted for what we write and quite often we have evidence of the bad things some officials do. So I decided to present a case against them in the Angolan courts. And that's where things went completely wrong because for the first time There was a case brought by a citizen in which the Attorney General, by deciding that there was no ground for persecution, published the entire report in the state newspaper, eight pages as advertisement. And of course those pages were used against me and then I was charged of defamation and libelous denunciation. But during my trial there was no cross-examination. There was no hearing of witnesses. So I was convicted in the end for having written the book. And so it just shows that when uh, justice is uh, a mockery, governments can't get away with anything. The Southern African Litigation Center says these stories perfectly illustrate why freedom of expression and the associated requirement of a free and independent medium is a cornerstone of democracy. It says democratic societies value accountability and that can only be achieved when the conduct of government officials is visible to the public. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ntobong in Johannesburg. Let's go back in time to today in 2008. Asif Ali Zadari, the widower of assassinated former Pakistani leader Benazir Bhutto, takes office as Pakistan's president. Barbara Plett has more. Asif Zadari appeared a little nervous as he took the oath of office, swearing allegiance to the constitution and to Islam as the state ideology. Afterwards, the presidential assembly hall rang with cries of long live Bhutto, A reminder that Mr. Zardari has achieved the country's most powerful civilian position because he gained leadership of his party due to the death of his wife, Benazir Bhutto. His son and party co-chairman, Bilawal, was in the audience, as were diplomats, politicians and the chiefs of the armed forces, representatives of the military establishment that Mr. Zardari and his party have often seen as the enemy. That was Barbara Plett reporting there on this day in 2008, and that clip courtesy of the SABC Archives. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A partnership between three of the world's leading developing countries has been lauded by the United Nations as an example of the solidarity of emerging economies in contributing to global development. The India, Brazil and South Africa Facility for Poverty and Hunger Alleviation, otherwise known as the IPSA Fund, was lauded as a model of best practice in South-South Corporation. The three countries also launched a report showcasing the successful projects the fund has supported in 24 countries globally in its nine years of operation. Show in Brasprey's reports. The IPSA Fund is a symbol of South-South cooperation and solidarity. 
It's a flagship initiative for the three countries, with an event here to launch a blueprint of what is possible developmentally even among developing countries themselves. India's ambassador to the UN, Asoke Mukherjee, is chair of the IPSA Fund. The fund has one singular aim, to contribute to eradicating poverty and alleviating hunger. What began with a $3 million initial corpus has today grown into a fund with an accumulated capital of more than $30 million with 24 success stories implemented, several others ongoing and a fresh set about to be rolled out this year. Working through the UN Development Programme and its Office for South-South Cooperation, the fund has made interventions in agriculture, rural electrification, waste management and health in some of the least developed countries in the world, among them the state of Palestine, Guinea-Bissau, Burundi and Haiti. South Africa's Ambassador Kingsley Mamabolo. The IPSO Fund remains a remarkable example of cooperation in inventive initiatives to implement South-South projects and its partnership with the United Nations system is an important one. In this regard, the fund is committed to identifying replicable and scalable projects that can be distributed to interested developing country partners as an example of best practices in the fight against poverty and hunger. The report and overview of the fund's project portfolio showcases those initiatives as an example of how developing countries can contribute to the post-2015 agenda. Helen Clark is the administrator of the UNDP, the fund's main implementing partner. This fund's portfolio includes 24 funded projects in 14 countries spanning every developing region of the world. And the investments made through it, $29 million, are almost 10 times the original capital investment. This fund has played a catalytic role in developing countries' pursuit of all eight of the MDGs. With calls here that South-South cooperation not be viewed as a substitute for North-South interventions, India's Ambassador Mukherjee explains. While South-South cooperation is relevant, it cannot be a substitute for North-South cooperation, which is based on clear commitments from industrialized countries to the developing world. The implementation of Agenda 2030 will bring this issue into clear focus, especially when we look at using the technology facilitation mechanism agreed to by all member states for accelerating the developmental process. A view endorsed by Ambassador Mamabolo. It is worth highlighting that our efforts through the IPSA Fund serve to complement the important North-South cooperation, as we need a robust global partnership which unlocks the potential of all forms of support. Each IPSA country contributes $1 million to the fund annually, an amount that could double after foreign ministers meet at the UN later this month. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. A South African government is to convene a mining in Daba next week to deliberate on intervention plans to rescue the mining industry, which is faced with massive job losses. This emerged after a mining sector consultative forum meeting chaired by President Jacob Zuma in Pretoria yesterday. The forum was established in 2013 to implement a framework agreement for a sustainable mining industry following the violence that erupted in Marikana in the northwest province in August 2012. Tsebo Ikaneng has more. Mining giants Lonmin and Amplats have already said they'll shed thousands of jobs. Government and the Chamber of Mines have both acknowledged that about 12,000 jobs in the sector are at risk. Last week, President Jacob Zuma urged business and labor to lower their expectations regarding profits and wage increases, saying that those could not come at the cost of jobs and the economy. President Zuma, who met with organized labor and mining bosses, said next month's mining Pakisa summit will help position the mining industry as a catalyst for development. If the objective is also to maximize the development of the industry across all value chains in the country, and to find win-win solutions for mineral beneficiation. This effort will contribute to one of the nine priority interventions that I announced earlier this year to grow the South African economy through, among other things, advancing beneficiation or adding value 
to our mineral wealth. Rival mining unions, NAM and AMCO, have committed themselves to denouncing violence and uphold a spirit of peaceful coexistence. The violence and the subsequent death of 44 people during the Marikana police shootings in August 2012 has been largely blamed on the rivalry between the two mine worker unions. President Zuma says he's pleased that both NAM and AMCO leaders embrace government's plan to restore stability in the mining areas. Stakeholders agreed that they will continue to encourage adherence by their respective constituencies to the commitments made in the framework agreement, including respect for the rule of law, denouncing violence and intimidation, and ensuring that the industry remains sustainable into the future. We call on everyone in the sector to work together and play their part in building a sustainable mining industry and growing the South African economy. President of the Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union, AMCO, Joseph Matunjwa, has blamed criminality for tensions in some of the mining areas. Things are happening in the mines because of criminality that is taking place, of which we don't encourage. The issue of unemployment, it also creates people who are staying around the mine to be a vested area for criminality. So therefore, we are committed to peace and to work side by side with any registered trade union in the environment where we are working. President of the National Union of Mine Workers, Pete Matosi, has absolved Noon from claims that it's also responsible for some acts of violence against members of the rival union AMCO. We have never encouraged violence under, even under very difficult times of apartheid. We have been a law-abiding organization and will continue to preserve lives, will continue to discourage any form of violence, either from non-members or other unions. We remain a peaceful organization. Mineral Resources Minister Advocates Mwakura Mathlodi and Labor Minister Mildred Oliphant attended the Mining Sector Consultative Forum meeting. Tsepo Ikaneng in Pretoria. Our economics updates up next with Tracy Boomgaard. Thank you, Lulu. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari is considering closing some embassies abroad as public finances have been hit hard by a slump in vital oil revenues. A committee will review all Nigerian embassies to determine those that are essential. With oil accounting for more than 90% of Nigeria's foreign exchange earnings, and about 70% of government revenues, the fall in crude prices and output has hurt finances and the Naira currency. Head of the Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union in South Africa, Joseph Matunjwa, says he is pleased with agreements reached regarding the mining job crisis. Matunjwa was addressing the media after meeting with President Jacob Zuma to solve job losses in the mining sector. What is important is to agree on issues that are debated. So it's an ongoing engagement. We've made it to the president that we will continue engaging. Africa needs to quickly switch to more sustainable ways of producing food and fuel to save its shrinking forests. This is according to Director of the World Wildlife Fund, Fred Kuma, who was speaking at the World Forestry Congress in South Africa's coastal city, Durban. It's estimated that Africa loses nearly 2 million hectares of land each year. Kuma says Africa has to find more innovative ways of producing food. At the moment, we are consuming so much wood on basic needs. 81% of the wood we use at the moment for homestead needs come from South Sub-Saharan Africa focused on, on, on wood from the forest, biomass. That's not sustainable. We need to find other ways of um, filling those needs. 
Zimbabwe's Meteorological Department has forecast a short rainy season for 2015-2016 and late rains. The news is a blow to the country which suffered a poor agricultural season in 2014-2015. Shanghai Nyoka reports. The rain forecast has dampened hopes for a turnaround in the upcoming agricultural season. Last year's erratic rainfall, which was also late, devastated crops and left 1.5 million Zimbabweans in need of food aid. Zimbabwe has forecast that this season will likely experience late rains again. The meteorological department has warned of normal to below normal rainfall throughout most of the country. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.85 South African Rand, at 10.41 Botswana Pula and at 9.86 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.65 British Pound and at 0.89 to the Euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,123, platinum is at $1,005 an ounce and the price of Brent crude oil is at $49.83 a barrel. A sports update up next with Tommy Kluzer. Thanks for joining us in your sport. Paul Magola's superb goal on debut for South Africa and to Bafana Bafana some redemption last night as they defeated Senegal 1-0 at the Orlando Stadium in the Nelson Mandela Challenge. The win arrives in the wake of a 3-1 loss to Mauritania in a 2017 Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers on Saturday. For the Taranga Lions, it is their first defeat to South Africa in seven matches with the West Africans having twice previously won the Nelson Mandela Challenge in 2002 and 2004. Bafana Bafana coach Sheikh Mashaba says it was very difficult to leave the team after last weekend's result. That was difficult and you know the reason. You know, it's, 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 it's very much unfortunate, very much unfortunate. People not aware how much work they're putting on coaches. It's not about losing a game, it's about what is being said after losing the game. For the first time in my life I managed to listen to all radio stations, newspapers, television, not even a single one was positive. There's only one guy I listened to on ETV. Very good, good, good what you call. And the points that he raised, he was spot on. I'm not going to oppose on what he said. We said with the players, we spoke to them, we said, let us bury the hatchet. We have lost, yes. We have lost, and um, what we need to do, let's march on. This was Bafana's first win against Senegal in seven attempts, but what made Mashaba happy with this result is because most of the things they've been working on came out perfectly. Tactical, we were working on going forward, get into the opposition's own half quickly, start playing combinations, and that's what happened. But the biggest problem that is still there, it's just finishing up. That is what is killing us. With a little bit of effort in scoring goals, we should have scored three goals. But this is what we've been working for, uh, uh, you know, since we started coming together. We always work, we emphasize on shooting from outside the box. I mean, we should have scored a goal in the first 10, 11 minutes. The one, Gabuza's ball that hit at the bar. We score that one, maybe a lot of goals will follow in that one. Nigeria's Super Eagles coach Sunday Olise finally got his first win as the coach of the Super Eagles as Nigeria beat Niger 2-0 in an international friendly in Port Harcourt yesterday. Despite the win, the display was a bit shady at times and Nigeria probably played her best football in the second half after Olise made some changes in the game. And in rugby, the defending Rugby World Cup champions, the New Zealand All Blacks, have, like the Springboks, been in camp for the past few weeks. They've had their final training session at home at Auckland's Eden Park before their departure for England. The All Blacks play their opening pool match against Argentina at London's Wembley Stadium on September the 20th, with pool matches against Tonga, Georgia and Namibia to follow. Flanker Sam Kane says that the team was taking the tournament step by step. Yeah, the key message has been... You know, we've got to go out there and earn the right to progress um, further in the tournament. You know, we can't take anything for granted and it's 
truly as tough as sometimes people make it out, we are truly focusing week by week, day by day. And in athletics, following her decision to skip the 2015 All-Africa Games, the National Sports Commission of the Athletics Federation of Nigeria have placed a ban on sprinter Blessing Okagbare, excluding her from representing the country at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio, Brazil. Okagbare had a dismal outing at the IWAF World Championships in Beijing in China. She claimed that injury forced her out of competition when Nigerians expected her to win a medal, having run the third fastest time of her season in the 100 meters after the Beijing. Meet Ogakbare told officials of the Athletics Federation of Nigeria not to expect her in Congo, but amazingly, she showed up in Zurich full of life and energy. And finally, Serena Williams overcame her sister Venus at the U.S. Open to move within two victories of her first calendar Grand Slam. The world number one held her nerve to win 6-2-6-1-1-6 and reach the semifinals in New York. Serena will play unseeded Italian Roberta Vinci in the last four tomorrow. The American could become the first player to win all four majors in the same year since Steffi Graf in 1988. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, U.S. Embassy in South Africa issues terror attack warning, Burundi opposition party official shot dead in Bujumbura, and South Sudan's rivals accuse each other of violating the ceasefire. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutura Magada, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Tandiswa Mazwai with Ingoma. Go to Banu Tini and Din.
morning and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the